0: They had come to the end of the sandbar, the jumping off place. There was a golden sheen on the royal surface of the water. A small whirlpool was spinning 50 feet from shore. Jackson stared at it and recalled, for the first time in many years, the Kaburu baptism, by Fullerite tradition, a rite of the ninth year. Going down, dazzled in the sun and heat, embraced by the love of the multitude, bent over backward from the waist, suspended in the river, his head held under by the weight of his father's hand, nostrils pinched together mouth sealed against the thrilled outcry in Jesus' name, amen. Where had his faith gone? That it all drained into the austerity, the sucking dryness of a drab, dotty, unresponsive stranger, a man who had never sung, laughed, prayed, cradled him in tenderness, a cipher, a long-lived cripple, a failure.
1: John, that's a nice quote to start with, but what I would have gone with was, looks like his pecker was blowed off, Lydell, that would have been my quote for this book. I tried to avoid
0: spoilers in at least the first <laughs> 60 seconds of the podcast.
1: I don't think it's spoiling this book to know that peckers get blown off in it. I think in some ways that's, that's giving this book as a gift to an audience to know right up front.
2: Well, to mention what
0: The Groin Explosions about. is just jumping in feet first, though. I mean,
2: I mean fair to enough. be fair, that's how the book starts. It jumps <laughs> in itself feet
0: first. It uh, it is or a very feet first audience. kind of book. Absolutely <laughs> agree with that. Welcome everybody to the Pink Smoke podcast with uh, John Kribbs and Chris funderberg co-founders of the pinksmoke.com. We are uh here again with a special guest who we've just had on our five from the fire Patreon only exclusive episode, Ms. Stephanie Crawford. Hello Stephanie.
2: Hello. I'd like to formally apologize for that episode, by the way. So. Why? What? <laughs> it's nice to have the opportunity.
1: No, I I will not accept any more self-deprecating negativity directed towards you. We love that episode. We're excited to have you on again. I only want positivity about Stephanie Crawford. Coming from Stephanie Crawford, most of all, this is the time when you reveal your new arrogant self to
2: us. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Bruh, for the backups. <laughs> no, but it's a pleasure. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, we love having Crawford on. She has written for Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, F This Movie, Neon Splatter, Fangoria, and others. She has been a podcast guest on numerous podcasts, including The Pod and the Pendulum, Kill by Kill, 26 Movies from Hell, Just the Disc, Good Times, Great Movies, Cinema Shame, Corpse Club, and countless other. We could just be here all day naming all the podcasts that have very very smartly had her on and she's also the co-host of the screencast podcast and has been teasing a new upcoming podcast we're excited to hear more about at some point maybe it will be revealed in this very episode we don't know <laughs> and her website is house of a reasonable amount of horror is dot com. and i just want to thank you uh, stephanie for taking time off remotely enjoying fantastic fest to talk with us how is the fest this year what are, how are the films
2: um, I am only one gore documentary in so far. That's all I've had time for. Um, but it's been great. Uh, the staff has been wonderful. Um, it's made up of two cats. Uh, they've been pretty cool about everything. Oh, uh, yeah. No complaints. One documentary, two cats. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: all you need for any festival, in my opinion um but yeah no we had a lot of fun talking with you on uh five from the fire so we're always glad to have you back uh and you'd mentioned to us uh whether well, you were compiling a horror fiction reading reading list for october so we wanted to uh take the advantage of that and get you on here to talk about uh, a work of horror fiction which we do every october the very first book podcast episode we did was celebrating a horror book in october so it's become an annual tradition and just to kind of kick things off i wanted to ask you what are some of your favorite horror fiction titles?
2: Well, with horror fiction, that's a little rough for me. Um, I'm a big fan of short horror fiction. That was my introduction. It was Stephen King's Night Shift. Um, I I
1: just bought that for my son literally this weekend, a copy of it for my son, who's like a big horror guy. Anyway,
2: sorry. How old is he?
1: He's 11, but he's like a huge horror guy. His favorite movies, John Carpenter's The Thing and Aliens, another favorite. So he's always been sort of had no limiter on that stuff. So he's already, we read The Mist together over the summer. So, and he really enjoyed that or enjoyed that. I was terrified and scarred by it and I'm a bad parent (laughs) and I'll be hearing about this for the next 30 years. But yeah, but I just got him night shift because I agree that I felt like, he asked to read some horror, and I thought, oh, short stories are the way to go. Not to interrupt your train of thought.
2: No, that was about the age I was when I first read it. Um, so good luck. Don't <laughs> let that scare you too much. Um, but I, I did come up with a list because I do, I do love horror fiction. Uh, the Drive-In by Joe Lansdale. That's a big one. Um, Broken Monsters by Lor- Lauren Burks. Uh, the Kill Riff with uh, David J. Scow. Um, I really like Carl, uh, Carlton Melnick III. Uh, he's a Bizarro fiction horror writer. Um, I really like Sweet Story, which is about a little girl wishing that it would rain candy, and it does, and it never stops.
0: Wow! Never heard of that one. That's <laughs> and
2: that's crazy. one of his more normal ones by far. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the other by uh, Thomas Tryon fairly solid movie later on. Um morning star, Peter Atkins. Um uh the influence, uh Ramsey Campbell.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Campbell's great.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. I just uh it, it's kind of chaotic my my taste. <laughs> I like a lot of 80s splatter punk. You know, I love Edgar Allan Poe, of course. Um yeah, it's just dependent on my mood. So the book we're discussing today is it it, it took a lot of boxes for me actually that was not expected
0: (laughs) well it's great it's great that you mentioned david uh scow who wrote about this book specifically selected as one of his as his favorite work of horror fiction for a book a compilation called like 100 great horror stories or something like that where they had horror writers pick a book that they love so he picked this one that's actually the first time i ever heard about it um but yeah, the book we're talking about, we should probably bring up is All Heads Turn When the Hunt Goes By by John Ferris, which was published in 77, I want to say. And I, no, I had not read this one before. This was Chris's idea. I don't know what he was thinking. with. This with, uh, is because...
1: untrue. I had never even heard of this book before John demanded that Stephanie and I read it, that we weren't offered any choice in the matter, I don't believe. I believe this was inflicted on us.
0: No, I'd, I'd heard about this book from a, a lot of people. I mean, it's got a great uh, kind of cult following. And as Stephanie's just holding up her copy, great covers, just terrific paperback covers for this book.
2: Oh, <laughs> Chris has the boring ebook. I know,
1: <laughs> I know. It was just too convenient. Um, but yeah,
0: so uh, so none of us really knew anything about this going in. I guess I'm guessing none of us read John Ferris before. Uh, but we probably all have all seen the fury the Brian De Palma movie, which is based on his book, which I I wrongly, I was going to say on this uh, podcast. I'm glad that I looked it up first. I was going to say, people always say it's a ripoff of Carrie, but it was actually published before Carrie. Not true at all. It was published two years after Carrie. So, I can't defend it in that sense, but
1: it's weird because all I know about Ferris is that Stephen King really likes him. That's, that's basically the only context I had ever heard his name. And then he wrote a few things or was co-published in like a compendium with Stephen King. I don't know if they actually wrote it together or, or what the, if, if they had collaborated or if it was just their two novellas smushed together for convenience sake. That was all I knew about him was the Stephen King connection. And obviously the Fury connection where the Fury is, I think, one of the the things that's most Stephen King-ish that is not written by Stephen King. Uh, again, same thing where I, I didn't even associate it with Carrie so much as Firestarter is what I really think of it as being more similar to. Even and just and has a lot of Stephen King-ish things that don't necessarily end up in the movies but are in his books with like secret government organizations looking to harness like psychic supernatural powers is something that's very Stephen Kingy to me. Like even just having read The Mist or thinking of like Dreamcatcher or whatever, you know, that that that's a very consistent thing in Stephen King's books that's not necessarily, I think, in the movies and is very much in the Fury
0: sure but we should mention though that ferris was writing was writing long before stephen king and and even i didn't know this until you brought it up on social media but had written and directed a movie uh <laughs> dear dead delilah which i got to watch this week and oh I'm really did you glad watch it I, I was gonna
1: say i've never seen it i've just seen that super bizarre post i poster. <laughs> I've,
2: I've, love that movie you like it? Oh, so? yeah? i do yeah just yeah you have the southern gothic thing but it uh the real sleazy kind of killer hag vibes of, uh, Ag- and i'll watch agnes morehead in anything yeah, she's anytime.
0: so great in it yeah i love her yeah, as the
2: it's an even, bound, it's a lot of evil fun.
0: matriarch the drunk matriarch of this fit like,
1: is it is it a psycho bitty film is it fully in that genre or not really
0: not fully in the genre but it's but it's very straight jacket-esque i would say you okay. know sort of the yeah. The woman with the past right, of, you right. know, going nuts and murdering her, her mother with an axe uh, is coming out of rehab and gets involved with this family that all want to kill each other for this, for the horse money. That's the whole thing that they, there's this hidden horse money that their father, their dead father has, you know, put in the mansion or the plantation somewhere and they're all trying to find it. And she's ultimately going to get, you know, sent up for, for these killings, you know, that she's part of the plan to frame her. But uh, it's a lot of fun. It's and, it, and like Stephanie said, it has a lot in common with this book. A lot of the themes are very kind of similar, although not quite as supernatural.
2: No, there, there's no budget in this book. And good Lord, you can tell. You can, you can see every every dollar, the $50 budget Dear Dead Delilah has on screen.
0: It all went to that portrait of the father. I'm, I'm convinced that giant portrait that Moorhead just stares at and talks to all the time.
2: I hope someone still has that. I hope that's still out there somewhere.
0: I always have that thought about art made for movies. Like, who got to keep this? You know, who got to take it home with them? If it's someone like uh, Edgar Wright, you know, he probably has like a whole, or Guillermo del Toro probably has like a whole library of art created for their films. But otherwise, on like a B picture, where they like, strike the set and they knock everything down. Yeah, who gets to run away with it? I don't know.
2: I just recently watched one with Rob Zombie. But of course, he's the type to... Oh, and collect the things from oh, without
0: a doubt <laughs> yeah he's probably got a whole wing of his mansion just dedicated to props and art made for his movies wouldn't be surprised
1: it wouldn't surprise me if he just moved into his sets after he was done filming <laughs> even that wouldn't shock me About Rob gets zombie. a
0: sleeping bag and cuddles up on the set <laughs> I can see that hey, this so is very the money up. Up. <laughs>
2: that's my uh, Rob Zombie impression <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, But anyway, before we get uh, launch into the book itself, uh, Stephanie, we always do an aperitif and a dessert pairing with these uh, books, an artwork that you recommend that someone dive into before they go into the book. So let me ask you, we'll have you go first. What aperitif pairing did you pick for this book?
2: Okay, for me, it's not really a one-for-one comparison and setting or... Uh, necessarily tone um, but uh, it has enough connections that I actually thought of this film quite a bit uh, throughout the book and that is uh, the ninth configuration
1: oh
0: I thought of Stacy Keach playing um, one of the main roles while boss. she's in this book <laughs> not boss but uh, champ
2: okay yeah well he's very tender but yeah yeah um, they're they're both dealing with um well first you have your novelists turned screenwriters turned very occasional film directors with william peter blatty and john ferris i thought that was an interesting uh connection there um but yeah the uh they both have this tone of just deliriously addictive chaos um that you just surrender to right from the beginning uh then uh the location Uh, they're very different like a castle in Hungary (laughs) (laughs) Uh, versus the sultry swampland but they're both incredibly powerful throughout each and then you have your dubious racial portrayals um, and uh, just uh, veterans uh, being pretty much forgotten about and uh, the kind of havoc that follows that so yeah I, I would start with the ninth a uh, configuration that kind of stretch stretch you out oxygenate the muscles and the brain a little bit and then you can you can dive deep into all heads turn when the hunt goes by oh, god willing.
0: <laughs> That's great. It's probably because Stacy Keach is for well the the, the champ character is first in a uniform at the wedding at the beginning is probably why yes. I immediately thought, oh Stacy Keach in his uniform from ninth configuration. <laughs> Have you ever read the book?
2: No and I know he he did his Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which is more comedic and satirical, and then he redid it to be darker, and the movie followed that one. So I would, I don't know how in print they are, but I would love to compare them.
1: We did a uh, we did an episode with Martin Kessler on the book of Ninth Configuration that might still be behind a paywall, <laughs> but it, it's it's interesting. We went through the sort of through the different versions and talked about you know Blatty's history as being like you know, a, a writing with with uh, Blake Edwards and being a comedy writer and nobody wanting to do The Exorcist because he was a comedy writer. Then after The Exorcist, no one wanted to do comedies with him anymore because he was The Exorcist guy. So we, we talked a little bit about that. I know it was Hollywood creative. phonies.
2: <laughs> OK, well, then you guys are qualified. How was that uh or, um, a fancy pansy aperitif, or whichever you A call.
1: pair of teeth, it's that's a great a selection. Uh, no, we're master mispronounce mispronouncers, so that is what I would say is don't ever take the correct way to pronounce something from John Cribs and I. You're, you're cruising <laughs> for a bruise, and if you do that, John, what's your aperitif pairing? Uh, my pairing,
0: I kind of lean into the southern gothic aspect of the book. This isn't this one, doesn't really go full-on southern gothic the way a lot of horror books do i mean it is definitely part of the background and uh, has a lot to do with it but for full-on southern gothic from this era of horror fiction i would recommend uh, the blackwater series by michael mcdowell which is six books totaling about uh, 1200 pages uh, sprawling over about 50 years of this family the uh, the caskey family uh, after a mysterious flood takes place in uh, perdita alabama and uh, a mysterious new arrival joins, the, marries into the family and she's got a secret, they've got a secret and there's some kind of supernatural link to the Blackwater River uh, running by, close by. And Michael McDowell, uh, for anyone who hasn't read him, I highly, highly recommend <coughs> pretty much any of his books. I love um, Cold Moon Over Babylon and uh, Guild of Needles and The Amulets, The Elementals. He wrote the original screenplay for Beetlejuice, which is notably darker than the the film that ended up getting made but it's you know kind of interesting to go back and look at but Blackwater I think is rightly considered his his epic you know the since it goes goes over six books uh and uh is just something that you can just kind of get into and live in feel that 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 southern steam and sweat that leads to the sex and violence that you know you associate with these kind of books. So if you like this one, I would say you probably would love the Blackwater books. Interesting. What do, you, what do you got, Chris? Are
1: you familiar with them, Stephanie? Have you read I don't know the Blackwater books?
2: No, sorry. they they sound interesting though.
1: So. oh yeah, they're excellent. They sound like uh you know like the Buddenbrooks, Brooks, but a horror novel. Is that true? How accurate of that is a <laughs> categorization? There's a little Thomas Mann in there. It's, so,
2: it's true. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed. So I was like, oh, I'm not familiar. And then you mentioned um Beetlejuice. I was like, ah, Tales from the Crypt <laughs> he wrote for Tales from the Crypt.
0: Yes, yeah, and tales from the dark side too yeah
1: well that, yeah, ties, so
2: like... that
1: ties in perfectly to my aperitif uh, or my fake aperitif because i said i'm going to let me let those me call are called
2: that. dentures <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, oh my god uh, good night fellas i'll remove myself <laughs>
1: I was going to call back to the uh, to an earlier episode you did with us, Stephanie Crawford, and pick a Tales from the Crypt episode. Uh, and I said, you know what? I'm going to pick, not the episode, I'm going to go back and read the Vault of Horror comic and say they should read Vault of Horror number 23. And that's the Tales from the Crypt episode is based on, and I read it and I'm like, Oh, this doesn't have any of the fucking things from the episode that makes it like the book. Forget that. I'm going to say they should watch Dead Weight, Toby Hooper's Dead Weight, which is also has similar ideas about voodoo and the legacy of colonialism and sort of this sex trench atmosphere with the great vanity in it. And there's also, you know, Hooper sort of adds a King connection to everything, Stephen King, because, you know, uh, with the Salem's Lot and the Mangler. And I said, no. I'm not going to say that. This is not my pick. I went through all of that, and that's not actually my pick. When I got to the end of the book, I said, you know what you should read or watch before you read this book is Frank Henlotter's Bad Biology. That's what I think you should go with, which is about, uh, it's not tonally similar, but it's the same sort of hyper sexual violence weirdness. Bad Biology is about a woman who has this uh, uh I don't even know how to describe it. hyperactive reproductive system. She gets pregnant every time she has sex and then gives birth shortly thereafter, and then murders the babies because they're inconvenient. And she, of course, meets a man with a gigantic sentient cock which at one point separates itself from his body and goes on a, uh, you know, a rape spree. I don't know how to describe it any more tasteful than that. And I think that Hen and Lauder's movies are are more. I don't want to say campy but they're like great schlock. You know what I mean? And this book is not schlocky at all. This book I was surprised by sort of how tasteful it is, but this this there's this book is also incredibly overheated and strange and I think there's very few analogs that get at how bizarre it is and I and I sort of think watch bad biology and sort of be prepared for how far this book is going to go cuz this book constantly, even for in the last 20 pages of this book, I'm like, holy shit, this is going even further, you know, with this book. So I think that that's a, a a better mindset to be in than necessarily reading something tasteful or even sort of like PG-13 rated like a Tales from the Crypt episode, you know?
0: That's interesting, although I would say the, the perfect book to put the head and lot of movie against would be something like The Incubus, which is just like... <laughs> almost indefensible. And it's sort of, you know, page after page of demonic sexual
1: assaults. Yeah. It's not on par with that. It's not, they're not a good one-to-one comparison. I would say that if you go with the other two that you guys probably did better comparisons tonally and intellectually and aesthetically, I just wanted some, some evidence of the extremity of this book, you know, because it definitely goes much further than, than a lot of books. I've read but I'm virtually illiterate so who am I to say how far any given <laughs> books goes
0: no it's still a great comparison and dead weight is a great a great pairing you know it's the only time you'll see Toby Hooper and James Remar work together and
1: James Remar the, playing, a, playing a natural redhead the role James Remar was born to play <laughs>
2: uh, he could be a clipper he could, oh, not casting it, anymore. could be a good
1: clipper yeah <laughs> absolutely he would he be see that. he would he would he would uh he would also be a good uh early boy um yeah
0: oh i'd be really curious curious to hear you guys would cast as early boy but let's just get a a little plot uh, synopsis going real quick uh this is a book set in the early 40s during world war ii uh set uh southern united states uh and also england has a, a brief interval in england but it uh basically intertwines the fates of two families, the Bradwins and the Hollies. The Bradwins are uh, an old money family uh, in Arkansas who still have a giant plantation called Dash-a-roons. The, uh, the Dasharoons,
1: Which they is a of- weird word, and I looked up trying to figure out where the hell that <laughs> word comes from.
2: It sounds like a Girl Scout cookie to me.
1: It sounds uncomfortably Delicious close. Delicious to- It sounds uncomfortably close to Octoroon. To me, That's which it. factors into this book in a funny in a funny way, but
0: the yes, yeah, so the Brad, the, the Bradwins, uh, this sprawling state called Dasharoon's in Arkansas, and they one of the sons is mar is getting married at uh, in the at the military academy in Virginia that they have close ties to, and something goes wrong. He runs amuck and starts attacking people and murdering people with his ceremonial saber it is and then throws himself out the window after running his himself through with the saber and we don't know what the hell's going on his brother is left to wonder what's going his brother who is active active military at the time his brother's name is champ charles Champ bradwin uh is kind of left wondering what happens and simultaneously we have another mystery kind of developing over in england where Uh, what they think is a bomb but everyone describes more as like a like a lightning or some kind of a just phantom explosion murders an old man at an asylum and we kind of learn his backstory uh, going back to equatorial Africa and what happened to his family and his son becomes a major character in America he gets involved with the Bradwins and everything is kind of resolved and I know that's a terrible terrible plot summary there but it is a book that, you know, takes a while to kind of see where it's going. And as characters kind of disappear and reappear, you kind of get like more of an appreciation of the connections that Ferris wants to make with these characters. But, it, but like Stephanie said, it really just kind of jumps right off the bat with this savage violence that happens at this wedding chapel, at this military uh, academy. And for me, the, just, just the description of the bell that's shaking the church, almost the, just shaking the foundation apart, but not ringing, just silently shaking it was like the eeriest thing I've read in a while. I really liked the effect of that. What'd you guys think of the opening of this book?
2: Oh, I loved it because um, it did something I really appreciate in books, which is getting to the characters right away. So we had um, our hero champ, uh, just notice the disrepair, the church is, and he's like, I need to talk to someone about this, and that, that immediately pays off, in just a firework display of violence, um, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful, you know, unfortunately, I had a little bit of a warning that would open up so bombastically, um, but God, it's just so beautifully done, it's, it's an orgy of violence, but it's written so clearly that it's heartbreaking, because these um especially the uh the bride is murdered and she's just like the sweet southern peach she's just so excited to finally get married and then and
0: (laughs) the first one to uh, go
2: yeah and (laughs) you know and as fantastic as the violence was and how effective it was yeah he's just as effective at um making these characters come to life and, and showing how deeply all these events affect them. And so I think that's why he's such a writer's writer. He has that perfect balance. It's really hard to get. And he does make it seem effortless.
1: That's yeah, I would agree that that actually really struck me about this book. I was saying to you, John, that I, I kept expecting, especially based on its subject matter, this book to be worse than it was. But he's a legitimately good writer, which surprised me continually in the book. At some point I should have gotten used to it, but but based on the the story and the subject matter, uh, there's not really false notes in his writing. You know, he is very good at drawing characters, he's very good at at setting scenes without being overly descriptive and wasting too much time on it. He's good at setting up questions that he then answers and intriguing mysteries that he doesn't draw out too long. He sort of draws out to the perfect length. Uh, he never lets the audience get too far ahead of him. Although I will say the central mystery, I feel like is pretty clear, pretty early on, you know, and, and probably doesn't need to be resolved with medical files late in the book. But it it is, I was continuously surprised by what a good writer he is. I know that's sort of a strange. Thing to say about an author I haven't read ever before, but definitely, uh, you know, we were talking about this when we when we recorded that Harlan Ellison uh, uh, Harlan Ellison episode recently, where you know, there's just there's a lot of genre writing that's just bad writing, you know, and you can get books published in genre writing based on the subject matter, uh, and the writing quality can be lower. This is just a fact, and um, and I kept sort of expecting him to slip into the problems that bad writers have and he didn't and and that definitely struck me right from the beginning you know especially too because he he does uh set up such a specific time and place that you know mood building tone setting creating characters and language and description of the scene it's really easy to fuck that up and have a lot of false notes in it you know, like of of wedding at a military facility with st- former soldiers and all of that. It's just you could you could make that sound really phony, really easily, and he doesn't. Well,
0: that and what really threw me off is that he starts in first person. He starts by having Champ writing in his diary, and that's what we're reading. It's almost like Dracula or uh, Carrie by Stephen King. You know, where it seems like oh, is this all going to be you know uh, uh, reading you know everyone's diaries or letters or things like that, but then he immediately abandons it after this opening scene and never goes back. Everything moving forward is strictly in third person. And that's the kind of thing that feels like this could be like a real false note to start a book to kind of switch the voice so abruptly. And then, you know, kind of not commit to, to one way of narrating, but uh, it works here. It works really well, especially since champ becomes less of a major character moving forward. And we kind of meet all these other people along the way. Uh, But right after the wedding, the disastrous wedding, we meet Nora, uh, the wife of Boss, Champ's father, the patriarch of this plantation, who is decapitated by his son Clipper when he runs amuck at the wedding and starts killing everybody. Boss's head falls onto the pew right in front of uh, Champ. And, uh, and Nora has missed the wedding because she was sick. So Champ kind of, you know, goes in his grief to console her over the death of their uh, shared loved ones and uh, grief, sex, why not? immediately they end up uh in in bed together and that kind of ends the first chapter of the the first kind of segment of this book where the two of them kind of consoling each other in each other's arms with uh champ definitely kind of lost in this completely unexplained phenomenon but that's where we kind of start with Nora and Chris you had already said you know the big revelation at the end it's not doesn't take you know a lot to figure out what it is especially if you've seen the cover of the books you know this one especially which uh you know has this gorgeous in, snake lady in
2: those covers defense i have a lot of horror books from around this time period and they can be incredibly misleading so
1: <laughs> it's true oh, absolutely. Yeah, i would never look at the cover of a pulp novel and think that
2: that probably represents something <laughs> yes. that happens in this book <laughs> there's definitely a dinosaur on a surfboard in this
1: movie I, just a political
2: mag. thriller no Why do they bring in
1: politics into surfing dinosaurs, man? I'm sick of this woke stuff.
0: uh, I immediately imagine Bridget LaHaye playing Nora just because they talk Ah. about her being so tall. So like impressively tall all the time is kind of her main description. Voluptuous and tall in French, you know, then they mentioned that she had spent her childhood also in uh, Equatorial Africa. Africa. And that just kind of like immediately kind of sprung into the time, the late 70s. It seemed like, oh, Bridget LaHaye would have been perfect for this role. And once that was in my head, I was like, oh, so she must be the monster. <laughs> <Right? That's, laughs> because if it's I'm thinking of Bridget LaHaye, I'm thinking that she's got to be the, the, the surprise monster coming.
2: Up. Your own typecasting ruin ending. I know that is fascinating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, then so this move. is how John's mind works. Oh, it's an attractive woman. She must be evil. Great. Got it, John. Good work. <laughs> you can't argue I, with those results. I've got to say, no one on this podcast can can see. I cannot take your fake David Foster Wallace look today, John. This is driving <laughs> me crazy. What are you doing? Um, Sorry. That will be edited out. Stephanie, what did you think of the structure of this book? Like that it doesn't, I mean, can you identify anyone as a main character and what do you think of the way it hops around? Did it work for you?
2: Yeah, I think it did. It did disarm me a little bit, but I have read books before that did this, that kind of, I don't know, worked functionally as uh, novellas within the novel itself um, so I, you know, I liked the hopping from St. Louis and to England. Um, and I, I think what John mentioned about it kind of, <laughs> except for, I guess the main twist, uh, it, it kept me on my toes. Uh, I, I really had no idea where I'd end up. Uh, the fact we ended up on a train at some point was really wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I think he rotated out the scenarios and the characters really well. It just, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the way he describes things, it, it forced me to really slow down my writing, but then he would get into every time he'd switch locations, it would get this kind of hyperkinetic energy. And I, so I think my one complaint is that my energy was kind of thrown around when I was reading the book because of yeah. that. Um, because you'd be like, oh, I'm going to sumptuously describe everything. And then, like, oh, watch out, you know. Um, your I'm complaint not- wasn't that we
1: had you read a book in which the sympathetic villainess fucks a horse. That wasn't your complaint.
2: But that's not what you asked about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sorry, now ahead. I seem like some kind of creep. <laughs> I'm on record. What is done to the horse in this book should not be done (laughs) to a horse in any situation, except with another consenting female horse. That up
1: for everybody? (laughs) Consenting woman, female horse. Do you want the list
2: of the things I object to in this book? Because I could do it if that's what you want. But then ask.
1: Wait, but this actually, this is actually a question I was thinking about when I was reading this, uh, specifically for you. Stephanie, because I think you have somebody who has an interesting sense of this is how do you define tastelessness? Like you're somebody who's a big John Waters fan. And John Waters is obviously all about creating work that is self-consciously tasteless in the first half of his career at any rate. That's sort of pushing the, the, the boundary of tastelessness. And that to me doesn't feel actually tasteless. You know what I mean? It feels like a sort of performative I don't want to say like deconstruction of the concept of it but there's something about this book that I was really on the fence of like is this a tasteless book or not and I was just wondering what like to you do you have a definition for like tastelessness in your mind or what's your relationship to it
2: I truly don't because I do think that it's completely situational um because I mean if you're watching a, a period drama big budget period drama based on real historical facts and they had that like the horse scene or the scene with the little girl and the grandpa which was one of the worst things I I think I've ever read um yeah that would be tasteless that'd be I'd clearly be put in there to shock us and get a reaction but you know when you pick up one of these horror paperbacks you're really just buying into just warped morals uh you're you're surrendering surrendering yourself to whatever the writer thinks they need to do to make everything effective and i've read a lot of you know like everything from edward lee who is probably the one who i think verges on tasteless while still being very talented for me um yeah i never have a pat answer for that um does does
1: does the talent excuse the tastelessness to you when you say edward lee like is that is that does the talent somehow mediate it
2: i i don't think it absolves it of the sin of tastelessness but yeah you that's know what I was trying to... you can consume it you know you're like ooh the whole time but oh it's just compulsively readable as you'll see a lot um so this one, uh, there's some really nasty things in it, and they're definitely put in there to catch the reader off guard. But um, he he does really uh, set the stage for these people are living in hell pretty much, and all yeah. bets are off. Um, and he did put in the work with the characters and uh, curses and the historically. So yeah, I, I I can see with these kinds of books, it can get kind of hairy, but.
0: I've compiled a kind of Joe Bob type list of some of the more offensive things in this book using language, (laughs) the language of John Ferris as much as I can. We've got genitals pulled out by the roots, attempted locker room shower rape, banana-based sex antics, ophidophilia-induced pants shitting, (laughs) bony fart train depots, skin civil rights leader, demure wife transformed into an aggressive trollop, Triffin Skull and Deathbed Boner.
1: You left out when Lord Luxton dies of cow. When Lord Luxton, the dies bomb investigator, he, they hear that he's investigated the bomb that's gone off. That's the guy's dick blowing up, right? The scene in England, the second sequence in the book, which the furlough to England is, we meet Lord Luxton, who's been brought in. It's just after World War II. They think it's some, some leftover ordinance has gone off and blown up. And he goes to find old Dr. Eustace Holly, who is dead. And basically the the wound is, is that his dick is blown up. And some, some kids who were nearby compared it to a hurricane force wind with a flash of light, right? And Lord Luxton does in his investigation, he, he talks to uh, uh, another doctor who, and she explains the history of, of, of Dr. Holly. And then Lord Luxton goes, she finds out the next day she's in her garden that he has died. He's driving and a cow was in the road. And to avoid it, he drove into a tree. And that's how Lord Luxton dies. The chauffeur
0: a, drove into a
1: tree. To be fair. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about this book is that's a really like Lord Luxton doesn't matter the plot at all. He takes it over for the second sequence. And then he dies in this extremely both believable and bizarre way. Like the book really does put you off balance. It's not all genitals pulled out at the roots you know it's there's a lot of weird strange things like that you know even like the character of of Bo bradwin that we'll get into later just the way he looks the way he does and his background and history you know it's to to make him this famous bank robber who's worried that they're getting together the fbi's most wanted list and hopes he's going to be on it that's a completely nothing throwaway detail that's interesting in the story there's a lot of like rich to call them non-distracting is not necessarily correct they're all distracting but i think that they're not they don't damage the ontology he's building they're not pulling apart at the seams by stuffing all of this stuff into it and
0: so no, that stuff is great you're right and i have real mixed feelings about luxton exiting sort of like agent desmond at the beginning of uh, firewalk with me he's almost sort of like a uh, eccentric Dale Cooper type investigator. Cause he knows that these, cause he's a bomb expert, but he knows that these bombs are not man-made, that there's something supernatural and weird. and It's got like a mind open to like the fact that this ancient evil in Africa might actually be responsible for these things. And he's described as having no fingernails, which I think it's a really creepy, weird character trait that he gives them physical traits. So when he exits abruptly, it's like, Oh, I was really enjoying that character. I thought he was going to become the, uh, the aristocratic molder of this book, you know,
1: but, uh, yeah. instead he meets death by cow. I forgotten the cow <laughs> was responsible. And I do love too, you know, Stephanie, you mentioned the character work is great when he talks about his fingernails are missing. And he said, you know, it was hell when I was a kid back in school, but school's out, you know, like that's such a great throwaway line. It's, it's funny and it's charming. And it like has a, like a perceptive, like if you knew somebody who grew up with finger no fingernails, they'd probably have a line like that about it. You know what I mean? It just has a very like real throwaway texture to it that also tells you a ton about this character and how he's handled his history and his life in the world. And just very, very uh, what could easily be a totally inconsequential character is handled in an in adept way. Were there any Stephanie? Were there any like smaller side characters that you liked in this book that stood out to you? Like Luxton?
2: Well, he was a big one for me. But um, just being reminded of all these characters, that it, it stands out to me that Ferris is buying a lot of goodwill for like the the dick exploding with all these characters yeah. and the moments. Um, yeah, I. You know, I, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I just. Um, I just liked them all. It was just a rich tapestry. It felt like a waltz. I was just constantly being passed off to a new, interesting character. Some yeah. of them I enjoyed spending time with more than others. Uh, but it was always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many of them had such uh, uncommonly uh, unfortunate endings to them. That's part of the fun. Is like an extra sick Agatha Christie every once in a while with how they get introduced and picked off.
0: Beggs gets away, though. She's okay
1: does she do we
0: know she that she
2: gets okay? I like begs.
1: I liked the two hired goons and the uh, the wife he's running away from that that champ is running away from the fiance that he's left where she yells don't hurt him and then throws the keys from the roadster away so so the second half of this book basically the plot of it is is that we catch up with with champ who are uh, not champ we do catch up with champ but we catch up with uh jackson who is dr eustace holly whose dick blew up son who has moved to america and is sort of a fraudulent doctor who's pretending to have bigger credentials than he has and is sort of constantly getting run out of towns these small towns and he's approached by an ex-girlfriend named begs who says hey there's this rich powerful soldier who i think has gone awol. can you do me this favor and get him back to his home in arkansas and he's like why do you want me to do this and she's like you know hey stay out of my shit i stay out of yours like just do me this favor and he's got to go because he's got these these brothers these thick neck goons of the woman that he left at the altar hot on his tail and are they in st louis at that point is that where they are i don't remember kansas city sure Mm -hmm. kansas city yeah, they're in Kansas City, and uh, and so he gets on the train with with Champ, who is one of the sons of of Boss and one of the brothers from the initial wedding massacre, who is headed back home. And he's in a delirious state. He's he's been stationed in the Pacific during World War II, and has almost had his head cut off and is in recovering in a hospital. And everyone thinks it's during a hand to hand bayonet fight, but he claims that it's his brother Clipper has come back and reappeared and tried to kill him, right? So he's headed home sort of in a delirious state to see his wife, Nancy. And in one of the... This book does have a huge amount of coincidences, but one of the things I like about them is how eerie they are, that it's his dead wife is placed on the train with them, right? That he doesn't know is dead yet. She's being transported and he finds his dead wife's body in a coffin in transport on the way home.
0: Yeah, Champ's wife, Nancy, who he saved at the wedding massacre because Clipper was coming after her very specifically. He spared, you know, Champ's life, but he was dead set on cutting off Nancy's head and he saves her only to find out that she has died while he's been away overseas on in service and that, yeah, her body has ended up on this train with them as they're heading back to Arkansas.
1: Yeah, to Dasharoon's. So <laughs> the second half of this book is essentially Champ, and Jackson, get back to Dasharoon's and sort of explore the mystery of why Nancy died, why people's dicks are blowing up. That's basically the second half of this book is yeah, and they, why they the wedding massacre of, yeah. happened, what's the mysterious doerins a transpire in, why they're happening.
0: Yeah, once things line up, you know, we kind of realize that there are these two past events that get narrated by other people that have kind of led to the supernatural occurrences that are happening. There's something called they call the, the tragedy of tele, Teleborné, which is in Africa when Dr. Uh, Eustace Holly was there with his family and they were supposedly, and Dr. Was
1: Eustace this... Holly is the old man in England who initially died in the explosion who Lord Luxton was exploring, was exploring. Jackson is his son. Sorry. It's just very convoluted. You're right. No, it's all right. It's all right.
0: Uh, Dick exploded. Yeah. Um, but I uh, was told that he had to uh, go down this river and care for this ancient haggard woman who supposedly is this, um, this, this mystical sorceress.
1: She's supposed to be 184 years old, Jin Lusant, who it should yes. also be pointed out is in control of these African tribes, but is herself white is an interesting facet about her.
0: Right. She's described as uh, having a beautiful, unsullied complexion and an athletic figure um, but she's now this decrepit old woman. So they bring him in to to prolong her life. He's done all this work with uh, different tribes, and you know, bringing in uh, health care for them. She thinks that he can help her, um, you know, revive her. But but doing so and being with this uh, these people have just made him. And I didn't write down the name of the, the tribe that they're with, but it drives him insane. And his family is subsequently destroyed. Right, his wife and daughter both die in a uh, capsized boating accident. And then his son, when he tries to come back to find his father, has found him in a sort of apocalypse now type, you know, sort of situation where he is just like, his hair is white and he just seems totally nuts. And what he does, he try he knocks his son out and operates on his skull, takes out parts of his skull to does create a, trepanation. a fetish. trepanation. Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, so that's the, that's the backstory of the Hollies and the backstory that affects uh, the um, characters of and, Dash and after
1: that and after Dr. Eustache Holly whose dick blows up performs this impromptu skull surgery unnecessary skull surgery on his son they're not close after that they sort of become estranged <laughs> after that is an important plot he doesn't like his dad and his he dad is also convinced a
2: Experience? <laughs> Apparently
1: not. you would think well, so you know as he gets older later in the book he realizes his dad was his dad was right and I think that's a bit of growing up. That sometimes <laughs> you have to perform unnecessary brain surgery to create a fetish to perfect you. From I, Ida Weda. is that how do you say it? What do we have any uh, any thoughts on how to pronounce Ida Weda's name?
0: Uh, Ida Wido, I think, is how it's pronounced. Ida Weedo. yeah. Okay, but um, but yeah, Ida Wido. The, yeah, the the, <laughs> the voodoo rainbow goddess, you know, comes in, and she she and and Jen Luceran are basically find out we that they're the same person they, but but we learn all that later the other big event that has happened is called the Chis, uh the chiska county war slash massacre which happened by Desarunes when uh, a civil uh, rights activist named Elias Perlman is uh trying to you know get better uh, situation for the black population of the county and uh basically turns out into this situation where a white white man is killed and that just leads to a complete massacre of all these people following Elias and it's a complete mess. And, and boss, the the patriarch yeah. again, is, is the man who kind of inadvertently, even though he's trying to, you know, kind of handle the situation and making everything go over smoothly and peacefully kind of sets off this massacre. So those are the two big events that later kind of transpired. And I bring those up mainly because a lot of these horror fiction stories, you know, are ancient evil things from the past that the characters are haunted by. And that's kind of how, what sets These, apart from Stephen King, who I've always thought is really more obsessed with the present, things that are happening now.
1: Can I just add one more narrative detail about about the the massacre? There's another son we haven't mentioned yet named Bo, who's sort of so disgusted by all this. He's the progressive uh, liberal son that he disappears and everybody thinks he's dead. Right? He just After smashing complete... Boss
0: in the face with a rifle yeah, butt. Yeah, Bo
1: smashes his dad in the face with a rifle butt because he's wailing on, on one of their uh, helpers, not former slaves, you know, and he's just so disgusted and he disappears Bo and heads out and everyone thinks he's gone, right? So that's the other uh, other lingering thread that ends up being important because he's as, certainly as important to the plot as any of them in the second half of the book.
0: Right, but that sets, that sets all of our... Sets all of our plates <laughs> up in a row, basically, uh, for when everyone is at Dash of Runes. And Stephanie, what I want to throw to you is just sort of some of the descriptions that that Ferris, you know, kind of uses in this. And, and again, I, I think you're right to say like his character work is really impressive. When he mentioned, he loves people's eyes, he always has to describe what people's eyes look like. Like even Beggs, who is a pretty inconsequential character in Kansas City, has the brutally sexual eyes of a peasant sorceress. You know, everyone's got to have these really notable eyes, but it becomes things that pay off like Tyrone, who is uh, a black man who's hanging around Dasharoon's turns out to be the illegitimate son of boss earlier in the book, he's described as having one of the characters says he has eyes like a white man. And it's not until later that we realize, Oh, he actually had boss was his father. So that would make sense. Uh, any of these descriptions that uh, kind of jumped out at you or do you kind of agree that these were kind of nice payoffs for the characters?
2: Yeah, there's, um, Ferris, he—he's—I uh, I would say a master setting up. I—I I only have this one book to go off of, but <laughs> so far, uh, yeah, um, yeah. There, he's wonderful at describing the atmosphere of the locations, but also not only the physical descriptions of the people, but how they carry themselves, the way they respond. Uh, I clued into where these people were mentally. Uh, a lot faster than I have in a lot of these horror books, where they don't even seem to care about it. And I, I feel like they he linked that with the physical descriptions as well. He really kind of wanted he wanted basically, I think, every single character to seduce us in one way or the other. And it did absolutely enhance <laughs> the impact throughout. You,
0: who is oh. the most seductive character? I gotta know.
2: Oh well, uh, uh, that's the horse. Boy. Chris, is that what you want to hear? Uh, no, no, it's
1: not what I want to hear at all.
2: Early boy's interesting though, because he has kind of the the double life. He seems when when he's first described, I almost just uh, pictured him as like a dirty little scrawny demon fiend, just like flitting around. The
1: guy from Right Hand Red, John, when he's first described. <laughs> anyway.
2: Uh, just like this nasty, like, oh, he's going to be like this big, bad guy. And then as it goes on, uh, I was like, oh, no, he's like, the he's scrappy and he's clawing through this madness and these terrible people in this terrible situation. Um, Yeah. The the apple,
0: the shredding of the apple is like his trademark thing, almost like the guy in Singing in the Rain who flips the coin, you know, he's got like that one (laughs) criminal thing that kind of brings his back to him all the time.
1: And yeah. I, was, I was thinking, too, about him. It's interesting. So this character of early boy, who's an overt criminal and is rec- recognized by Jackson as being a famous bank robber, um, is revealed to be Bo, who's had his face mangled in injury. And Bo is back sort of to put an end to what he's discovered the source of all of this is. He's sort of back to, to, to set everything right. Um, He's a he's like a diabolical hobo character, like you say when he's introduced. This is a this is um a very uh, cliche horror character, you know, like the diabolical hobo. one of the things I liked about the book is how it plays with a lot of or, common... or
0: picaresque gangster as he's described, which I liked.
2: <laughs> yeah, posing jauntily for while he's like putting the bank up and like it, my ska. But it
1: introduces. <laughs> It introduces uh, like these sort of uh, things that would be stock characters, and then sort of puts little twists and turns on them in a lot of ways, even boss Bradwin, who is in a lot of ways, uh, a standard villain for this sort of thing is given a lot more generosity by Ferris during the moments when he's causing all of these problems that are ultimately going to, to impact the community very deeply. And that's what I, I, I liked about this book is that it, it, it takes sort of standard issue stuff and twists it just enough that you I always felt like I was looking in the wrong direction for where the story was going and that he had done that on purpose, you know? that he he sets up this character so i'm looking to the west and then the story is actually walking east and i don't realize i'm walking backwards and i go i have to turn around and look over here now you know i sort of felt that way a lot with this with what he what he set up
0: um the one i would the one character i would say doesn't defy those expectations is the lawyer Everett john wilkes (laughs) who's kind of a one note kind of bigot horrible guy and it's kind of unfortunate. Now, let me tell weird. you what
1: we got there with these boys. Where his that yeah, it's
0: kind of leghorn leghornness. It's kind of a bummer <laughs> at the end where his his conspiracy theory, his racist conspiracy theory, is kind of right.
1: Well, this <laughs> the that's, big resolution. That's, that's one thing that we also need to address with the book is that this book is very much about racism and sort of the impact of post-colonial behaviors and the position, racial position of Black people in a post-colonial, uh, post-Southern plantation, post-slavery world and sort of the, um, the way in which the angers uh, and injustices are revisited and transmuted into something else. But at the same time, it does do a lot of things that if it were in a Stephen King book, you'd just be cringing through the floor with like voodoo. And, you know, it's depictions of evil black magic and the way, you know, black people use their special powers, you know, that that sort of makes you go, I think it's I think it's interesting. My dessert pairing, I'll talk about this more and what I think about this book a little bit. But did that I was constantly surprised again by how well it handles that stuff uh, without sort of going over the edge into like, oh man, you just fucked this up. Did you guys feel the same way or did you feel like the racial elements? To me, it reminded me a lot of actually like uh, Population 1280, the Jim Thompson novel, which has, which is not on its surface narrative level about racial segregation and strife and unrest but definitely has these huge impactful moments late in the book that are explicitly about that. How did you think of, what did you guys think of how he handled the racial elements? Did he handle it? Did he handle it as well as Nora handles a horse? (laughs) Jesus.
0: You better leave that in there. Um, I, I, I agree that when we meet our first, Uh, Black character, Bull Pete, right, at the uh, wedding, and he talks like a vaudeville character, characterization of a Black person from that time. It's like, oof, how much of this am I going to have to endure? But I think it's something Daris is is conscious of, you know, and it comes up later when the Tyrone character becomes such a complicated character and when he starts affecting that accent you know, in a way to, to, to you know, mock, you know, the way white people see the black characters, you realize that this is something that Ferris, you know, is putting through the eyes of these these white people in the first place. And I, I agree that it's really interesting kind of a look for wartime, especially when he makes a big deal about how the, everyone is affected by the war, even though they're not directly involved with it. It's just something that's just hanging over everybody. And one of the consequences of that is that this kind of a, you know, Southern lifestyle that is completely antiquated and should have been moved away from is allowed to continue because everyone is so preoccupied with what's going over on over in Europe. Every, no one stops to think, you know, hey, this is probably not, this is a little too close to the way things were pre-Civil War, you know, that even though people are paid servants now, they're practically, you know, still considered lesser beings and than, than the white uh, family members
1: yeah the social structures are still there
0: oh, yeah it's completely fucked
1: yeah they're still festering in it yeah, yeah. and i also think making Jin lucant uh a white woman is interesting because it does undercut any sort of like this poison is sourced from the dark heart of africa and black magic kind of thing it makes it what, however, this happened, this is very much, even when it was in Africa, it's a white colonial poison, even if it's coming from Africa. And I think that that's very conscious on his part to make it both ancient, that she is supposedly remembers uh, the, before the Civil War, you know, this character. And, and to make it about that long spanning of a history, I think is very conscious on his part And at the same time, I do think it's about, you know, the character of Tyrone, who is who is positioned in a lot of ways narratively as the villain and vanquishing of him is the narrative resolution for a lot of this story. You know, like we got the bad guy. I think the movie, the book has a much more sophisticated understanding of what what is actually poisoning this family and cursing this family, which is there colonial roots, you know, and their colonial existence is the literal poison of this family stretching back 184 years, I think is the entire idea of what this curse is, you know, and why Bo, who is who is uh, wants to move on from it is is the character who's sort of in a conscious liberal political way is the character who's given the job of understanding this and trying to do something about it too. you know. I think it does belong to a certain kind of politics that in the 70s would have read a little bit radical even then, and is probably a little bit dated now based on where things have gone in terms of uh, identity politics. I, I don't want to overpraise this book in a modern context. I think that that there's still probably plenty you could find to complain about with it, especially you know as, as theory has developed and gotten more sophisticated. But I think certainly in the time in which it's set, I think he's sincerely trying to grapple with these issues and has a perspective that's, again, much more complicated than I thought it would be. You know? Yeah.
0: And even the cultural influences on the book you know, taking, you know, the idea of Ada Wido, you know, the beautiful as a rainbow forbidden as an adder, you know, from voodoo mythology, who is married to Dembala, you know, the one who helped Chucky out when he wanted to become, you know, killer doll. Uh, he also mentioned uh, uh, it was
1: look, Charles Lee Ray is the character's name,
0: but it was known as Chucky. Yeah. Um, he he also inserts uh, Lamia by Keats, right? The idea of this uh, woman, this snake woman, who's turned into a human and is masquerading as a human, sort of as a hint, you know, to what's going on. And that obviously is coming from European, you know, kind of artistic background thrown in there as well. So there's a little bit of everything. I really thought it was a very rich tapestry of kind of background things to, that went into this.
1: Is there anything in the book that you guys felt like really didn't? work i know you had mentioned a a few things stephanie but is there anything that was like on the verge of being a deal breaker for
2: you um okay so it wasn't specifically the fault of this book but i think it's more of the fault of books i've read in the past um of this time period uh, white men writing about them in these horror books but every time um a sexual situation was approached like it, this this was just a deeply sexist time uh for pulp literature and just to uh just to a point where I think it would uh it negatively affected plots and characters like you know you you just have something really good going and then the guy is so dashing they have to stop and have sex um but after a lot of sexual uh let's just say situations that will happen in the book the female characters will just start getting reduced down to that only caring about either pursuing a continued sexual relationship or a romantic relationship and um it it just gets to the point where it's just this white noise in the back of my head and I yeah. start getting nervous about it. but it didn't happen in this. Nora, uh, I think she remains one of the most interesting and uh, um, definitely one of the most dynamic characters in the book. So, you know, I can find scenes and instances <laughs> that are not ideally for me in this. Um, I didn't mark them. I'm an optimistic person. I don't try to, <laughs> try to dwell on the negative like that. Um, however, uh, yeah, I, uh, I feel like uh, John Ferris, like he did with a lot of parts in this book, he courted with things that I think make us nervous that we think is like, oh, this is what a bad writer would do, this would be yeah. the crappy pat turn he could take, and then he doesn't, he, he backs off from it most of the time. Uh, and I, I don't know, I appreciated that,
1: yeah. The only yeah. time, and I wrote it down, the only time. I with the sex stuff in this book where I was like, this is this is like reminds me of bad pulp writing was the like big time when Jackson and Nora hook up and specifically the line, his wearied penis was still half erect and snuggled in tribute against her belly. (laughs) It's like, come on, man, you avoided this, this whole fucking book. And now I got to read that. Get this.
2: at least it's only it. a line i've had it be like two and a half
1: pages yeah oh, it's, sure. more, it's yeah. more like a paragraph and i just pick the crungiest. no but you're absolutely you're absolutely it's right. little it's moments not... for me for me the moment was but, but describing oh,
0: begs you know who's yeah. you know married to a, a guy who's overseas but she's had you know other affairs while he's been gone and describes her as like she was an adequate lay and i just
2: Okay, see, room, I like, oh, hated God. that. I hated that. But it does bring me into what I said because he's like all right, she seems like she's sincere and and about really needing to talk to me about something important, but we'll see. She's probably going to throw herself at me and then she's like, "Yeah, so this is my job and this guy's in a really bad way and I need your help." Why are you looking at me it that way? Get get into gear. Get this guy some help." I'm like, "Thank you." Just had
0: that redeeming yeah kind of character moment sure absolutely
2: um
1: i it's also funny thinking about the language of it too i don't read a lot of horror books they whereas i'm a huge horror movie fan i you know i love horror movies as much as i love any genre probably more but i don't enjoy horror literature and i was thinking about this and why a lot of it doesn't work for me is um, in the opening scene where it's, he goes where Clipper goes to kill himself. And it says, he sheathed the sword in his gullet, right? That if you, and I don't, that phrase is kind of dumb. And I go like, eh, you know, when I read that, you know, whereas if you see that on screen, you see it, you know, and the, and there's no sort of linguistic, uh, uh, veneer between you and the action, you know, and when a lot of horror literature, you have to choose language that works correctly. Otherwise it doesn't, um, other, otherwise it doesn't have nearly the impact. And I find that there's very few ways to describe visceral activity that work for me. As a reader, you know, that that viscera and visceral activity is very hard to describe. I actually think about this a lot with Milan Kundera, right? Where to flip it back to sex, in one of Moon, Milan Kundera's books, it, Unbearable Lightness of Being, obviously, he's describing the characters having sex and he writes that uh, he looked at the eye of her rump, right? And I'm always like, gross, dude, like, fucking get this out of my face this is supposed to be a really sexy scene supposed to be driving him wild with passion you you've just like i'm not now like this is over like get away from me right but in the movie you just show lena olin on screen and you just need to show her and the entire audience is wild with desire You know what i mean like everybody feels that just by looking at this beautiful woman you don't need to describe it you don't need to find the correct words you just need to cast it correctly and i feel like with a lot of horror literature especially with more mediocre writers it's the eye of the rump problem constantly when they're describing sex and violence you know that you really are like that sentence i just read Uh, you really do run into a lot of that kind of writing, and it's very, very hard for me to get over, you know, and that's, again, one of the things I liked about this book is that he doesn't um, try to find a poetic phrase or luxuriate in the violence. It happens very quickly, or it's already happened. We're frequently seeing people just after the violence has occurred to them, or like sort of mid violence. I also, one of the quick descriptions in the uh, opening wedding massacre that I love is when I forget whose corpse they're standing on when they're trying to get out and he's trying to save Nancy and he's standing, I guess on boss's corpse and Nancy's like, oh my God, you're standing on his corpse. And that's such a horrifying image. You don't need to describe it. It's just the act itself of like this chaotic moment where you don't even realize you're standing on your dead dad's stomach. You know what I mean? Like, you don't actually have to be more visceral than that. Like, the scene is enough.
0: On the other hand, certain word choices, you know, that are kind of glaringly strange. You know, Chris, that I love to pick out like new phrases from books like this. And my particular favorite one in this one was when someone's street manners are described as Shaq sassy. (laughs) I'd really like to know what makes up Shaq sassy street manners. I don't know. I'm curious.
1: You know. I'm certainly not the man to ask anymore. Do you, Stephanie, do you have strong feelings? Do you have a preference of horror movies versus horror literature? Or do you get something out of each and, and delineate between them in a way that's satisfying to you?
2: I do enjoy both. I do still vastly prefer films. And I think we're kind of on the same page as why. But I do understand and respect what a lot of horror writers need to do, which is to be kind of bombastic, sometimes even purple with their prose if maybe they're not as confident or not as skilled because they're just trying to tap into your lizard brain. You know, they don't have the advantage of visuals. And some of them, like John Ferris or Robert Block, they're just really great at kind of, being serpentine and crawling in there and uh implanting like i i think ferris part of why he might have worked for you i feel like he does write very cinematically yeah uh he's he's just really fantastic at setting the scene and um and then a lot of writers are just pure wordsmith they even look down on uh that kind of trying to make things come off like a film or anything and even though I, I am a horror uh, fiction fan, um, the affection I feel for that is so different from films. They tickle completely different parts of my brain. Yeah. I have to be in completely different kinds of uh, moods when I'm consuming them. So yeah, when I people think... say they don't read a lot of horror, I get it. Sorry, it's one of the reasons why I like to read widely within mm-hmm. the genre at different like you can have cosmic horror basically slashers on page psychological procedural uh because one it, it makes me better at recommending it to people yeah. <laughs> so hopefully i can hit on something they'd like um but it, it's just like filmmakers it's kind of just fun seeing how these people uh can incite terror and revulsion just with words
0: yeah, the cinematic writing, I definitely agree with the flashback scene to uh, Los Negros Island and the Bismarck Sea, the battle sequence where they're fighting in the dark. And he says, people are, you know, soldiers stabbing their own people on their own side. It's impossible to tell who you're killing at this close uh, range in the complete darkness. And sort of like Chris was describing, you know, stepping over boss's body, how he's just like stepping over all of these corpses lying around him. Is a uh, very visceral, very cinematic kind of writing that I really enjoyed. I'm glad he was able to kind of go back and forth between atmospheric writing and be able to go into different kinds of genres like action writing and uh, you know war, war prose and things like that. So I'm with you on that. And I wanted to see the painting of Boss. You know the way we saw the painting of the patriarch in um, uh, *Dear Dead Delilah*. You know, They've, yeah, it's by Frederick Remington. A...
2: So the old-fashioned step-back covers with the cutout you just see a little man's face you open it up and it's just him in all his glory
0: boom
1: boss
2: <laughs> chris now you know what to commission for a christmas farm
1: i always know what to commission for john cribs every
2: christmas <laughs> yeah, i i apologize
1: <laughs> um <laughs> apology accepted stephanie grover giant <laughs>
0: mantelpiece Painting me by Tony Stella, Chris. You know what you
1: want. <laughs> A view as boss. I think you would be good casting as boss, John Cripps. I think you would be very good casting as boss. <laughs> Just kidding. You're too sweethearted. You be you be Bo, every day of the week. Um, <laughs> we we haven't mentioned yet,
0: by the way. We that mentioned beau, that Bo, the big revelation, is that Bo and uh, oh no, early early, early boy Hodges the picaresque gangster are one and the same.
1: Yes. He's returned he as pro. early boy. Yes, to, to save everyone from Nora. And Jackson is at cross purposes and Champ is at cross purposes, the, the three of them. Now this is, did I read this correctly? You're supposed to get the sense that Champ has like transmuted into like a gir- ghost version of Boss, right? At the end of the book. Like when when he's being attended to and everything it's just the boss bed and all that, he's supposed to be like possessed with the spirit of boss in some way, right? Or did I did I project too much into it?
0: That's what I took from it.
2: Okay.
1: Just curious. Sometimes it's nice to talk to people who've read a book so they can clarify things. Yeah, not everything has to you, be an insight. You yes. Yes. we so, so I'm not a careful reader. Sorry, guys.
2: <laughs> well, we it's move? a very
1: abrupt
0: ending Once it finally kind of comes down to it There's a lot of setup And if I had one uh, critique of the book overall it Would be events that we have read about already Kind of get re-narrated by characters later on you know, There's a little bit of repetition towards the end uh, And it kind it's of draws a, things out a little bit
1: It's a very expositional book Did that work for you guys? That so much of it is delivered in exposition That so much of it you're told about what happened Rather than seeing it?
0: I didn't mind when it was, you know, things that we that happened before the book, but then by the end, when they're kind of going over the wedding massacre and things like that, narrating it all fresh new for new people, characters, it's, it's exposition to them because they haven't heard it before, but it's not to us. We've already kind of experienced it. So considering that, it's kind of crazy how fast things start happening in the last 30 pages of the book. I think things kind of go downhill pretty quickly. Did you get that impression, Stephanie?
2: Yeah, it's definitely one of the weaker part of the books. Uh, However, it didn't completely take me out of it because he uh, was pretty good at couching it with um, not just wasting it on reiterating exposition, but it furthered the character relationship a little bit. So I was like, all right.
1: Yeah. Maybe I'll
2: scan this part a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, sure.
1: I actually really like the ending of this book. I really like how the last five pages or so is written when it gets into those very short, choppy chapter lits and, and just where it heads. It's a book that definitely after, because we've mentioned it, that that Tyrone is killed and vanquished. It keeps going and and it keeps going in a satisfying way. And I definitely had no idea where it was headed with any of this, even as it starts loading up on like, here's another wedding here's boss coming back from the dead here's champ on its way it's it's still even saying all that again it's like he's pointing me as a reader in one direction and it's going to go another it was very good i was i was very um unable to predict where this book was going to end up which is one of the things i liked about it
0: i just wanted to ask you before we finish because you've mentioned the mm-hmm. horse fucking left and right on this episode yes but- haven't really given away the big reveal with Nora. So maybe just give a quick, what, a quick synopsis she, of what it is.
1: The big, the big reveal with Nora is that she's possessed by the, the spirit of I, Ida Uedo. That right? she was
0: abducted as a child. Yes, she was abducted the, with right. a
1: child because she also lived in Ecuador, Guinea, and was uh, uh, somehow imbued with the spirit of the seductive serpentine snake lady goddess and she is the reason if you sleep with her dick's gonna blow up man this is part of the problem um that uh that that's that she's basically it's a metaphor is what it is yeah she's I basically did
2: think the safe sex metaphor was a little ham-fisted <laughs> i will say that
1: but she is she's literally full of poison when they test her her like nails and hair she's somehow full of poison there's a pseudo-civic pseudo-scientific explanation for it but basically idea is that she is being controlled by Tyrone the the voodoo uh, uh shaman in some way then that that she is being used to destroy the Bradwin family consciously by him now and that is how it it all ties together um and so she's it's again she's somebody who's written especially early on you go okay we got the horror film fatale here i know what this is going to be but it has a different kind of sympathy and relationship to her ultimately the book um all said now shall we move on to our dessert pairings does that work for you is there any more you'd like to say about the book proper stephanie crawford
2: did you did you like
0: the book overall would you read more john ferris what do you think
2: yeah i thought it was fantastic um it you know it had a lot of tropes but he used them uh you know he said like we've talked about he established things are like oh it's going to be this kind of mysticism movie oh it's, or book it's going to be this kind of a voodoo plot oh it's going to be this femme fatale and he's like it, he just bounces off them into all kinds of directions it was a lot of it was a lot of fun to read it's a kind of disgusting stressful book but I, <laughs> I i really enjoyed the prose i thought the characters are fascinating uh yeah i am ready to read ferris
1: for sure what now this will be my last question what does the title mean
2: yeah because they <laughs> <bring it up. laughs> well you know what they say back in the old country <laughs>
1: uh there's no hunt nobody they assumed it was started. taken from from
0: keats but he doesn't explicitly say that and I didn't check. So I don't know if that's where he gets it from or not, but it works. It's a really good title. So I I don't have a problem with it.
1: Yeah, it's spectacular. It's got that exterminating angel factor of this just feels great. I just want to read this, you know, based on the title. Yeah. So John, what is your dessert pairing? to go with this.
0: Well, we're going snake goddess here. How am I not going to say Layer of the White Worm by Ken Russell, right? (laughs) Nice. Uh, Layer of the White Worm is uh, the story of uh, an excavation team at Derbyshire Bed and Breakfast where they are. They find a giant snake skull, which turns out to actually be the the skull of a worm god, a mythical snake-like creature from ages past. And right around the same time, this Beautiful woman, Lady Sylvia Marsh, played by, incredibly, by Amanda Donahoe, shows up and starts seducing people and uh, then biting them and killing them, eating them. And she's just one of the most absolute great horror monsters ever put on screen. Uh, She's she's the whole movie, just uh, in a nutshell. She's just fantastic. Uh, And of course, it turns out that she's a high priestess to the snake god. A lot of people incorrectly call her a vampire. Technically, she's not a vampire in this movie. Although she has beautiful giant fangs and sloughs around much like a vampire would, she's in fact the high priestess to a snake god. To uh, to spoil that, but uh, if you haven't seen it, it is a it's a wild ride. It's so much fun. Uh, it's funny and uh, and sexy and everything you'd ever want from a Ken Russell film. So that would be my recommendation to to, <laughs> to bear with this book. Um, Chris, what do you got?
1: Yes, I was going to say we'll let our guests go last. My pairing is I picked Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is a very, very similar book in a lot of ways. It's a supernatural story about slavery in the past, but it's also similarly unafraid about being in poor taste. It's got weird scenes of pissing and bestiality. It's got tons of sexual violence, um, and but it's also about... At the heart of the story, it's about a mother trying to kill her own kids, like at the opening scene of this. It's about family members trying to kill family members. Uh, And it's I think, you know, it's it's a ghost. Again, it starts out as a ghost story. And that's kind of a feint that moves away to a different story, a different kind of supernatural character, than shows up in the book, the character of Beloved, and what her relationship is. She's also a character that's sort of positioned as a femme fatale and then turns out not to be. When I read this book, I was really thinking a a lot about Beloved when I read it. It really reminded me a huge amount about Beloved, and it's a testament to all head's turn that I didn't that it's not completely blown out of the water by beloved. I think Beloved's probably one of the 50 best novels ever written. I think it's, it's really, you know, Tony Morrison's obviously one of the modern greats just as good as there is. And I think it's, I think it's um, it's overstating it to say that it's anywhere near as good as that, but it's impressive that it's not just get this the fuck out of my face and read beloved instead. You know, I think if the themes of these i of this book appeal to you and the ideas uh, uh, work on you, then you can read and expand and go even deeper and even more sophisticated sort of tributary of thought and taste and aesthetics towards Beloved, which is an improvement on it in every single possible way. You know, um, but at the same time, if you like this and you have been intimidated in some way by reading Tony Morrison, who's a very um, a, a complicated, interesting writer. That if you somehow been put off by the literary reputation of her work, this is a great entry point, you know. And and just, I would want to say that you know I think everybody should, you know, there's probably three or four Toni Morrison books that every reader should have read or should read. And uh, and this would be if you're somebody who loves horror novels and has has been loath to go into different horizons and this book really appealed to you, give this one a try. I think you'll like it. I think I'll, you'll find I'll, it. I love thinking of point.
0: beloved as a horror story, you know, I mean, yeah. when you think of it as a, as a grief horror story, the book and the movie by Jonathan Demme.
1: Yeah.
0: A grief horror story about a woman, uh, a parent who wants their child back. It's almost like death dream in that way, you know, where it's this, this you know, the psychological horror film about a ghost literally materialized by this sense yeah. of loss and, and, and guilt.
1: And so. like somebody who's long presumed dead child reappearing. It's just so yeah. similar that all heads turn. It's got so many like weird, you know, it's like two constellations you place over each other and they sort of match up in a really surprising way.
0: It has been a while since I've read beloved. How many exploding dicks in, in that one? To...
1: <sighs> does it, does the guy's dick explode? He, I mean, there's some really I don't know. Spoilers for it. There's some very bad thing that happens to a specific character. I don't think his dick explodes. though. But it's yeah, but it's it's great. And then Stephanie, what was what was your dessert pairing to go with this? Such a delicious dessert as Beloved, I hope, just goes down so smooth and light.
2: Yeah, thanks for making me follow that nice highbrow answer. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm going to bring us back down. Well, you've got
0: the low uh, and the highbrow in that one, so you can go anywhere in between. <laughs> uh,
2: since it's spooky season, I thought I'd recommend another horror novel. Um, this one, I feel like uh, it has a lot in common with it, both uh, kind of a Southern Gothic thing, but also dealing with some incredibly nasty situations with some beautiful prose and very sensitive character work. And that is Tom Piccarelli's uh, Acquire of Ill Children. Whoa,
1: great title.
2: Yeah, uh, and it also has a great title. If if your standards have gone way up after all heads turn when the hunt goes <laughs> by. Fantastic title. Um, I'll just read the back very quickly because I, I this book makes me feel very emotional. <laughs> it really gets to me, but... Kingdom Come is a decaying backwater that draws the lost, the ill-fated, and the damned. Ever since his mother's disappearance and his father's suicide, Thomas has cared for his three brothers, conjoined triplets with one shared brain, and overseen the town's only industry, the mill. The superstitious town folk look to him with a mix of fear and awe, but Thomas suspects that not even he can protect them from the evil that's coming this lyrical tale of loss and redemption thomas will have to face down his own tormented past if he's to stop damnation itself from conquering kingdom come
1: that sounds awesome wow
2: it's awesome it is short it packs in uh, grief horror uh, body horror uh, sexual horror familiar. It, it covers all the bases But it's really beautiful. There, there's this heartbreaking sincerity through the whole damn thing that, you know, I'll I'll be kind of crying and crunching. But I've read it like three times, so Uh, it's not an easy read. But I think it's very much worth it.
1: Awesome. I'm
0: intrigued. Yeah, my I already looked it up. My library doesn't have it, which sucks. But I'll have to get it. Then I'll have to track it down.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. I definitely, if you get a copy, John, hold on to it, and I will, I will steal yours. That's my philosophy in all things. Stephanie, thank you so much for doing this episode. I hope you had a good time. We always love to have you on. You are one of our very favorite guests. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything you wanted to, to promote or plug before we get to the end of this arduous journey into the mind of John Ferris? Any announcements from the Crawford Kingdom? Nah, please, please
2: join the Pink Smoke. Uh, patreon oh. oh wait you're listening to this up what you're giving them up what you're giving them. <laughs>
1: uh this one will be released to the general public so this oh, okay one, then yes
2: please everybody, everybody
1: <laughs> will get to hear we'll get to hear this one thank you so much for doing this
2: No, they, thank you it's so fun I, I, you guys you have good brains I like your brain it's always a lot of fun <laughs>
0: Delicious brains.
2: Okay.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. Happy October. Happy this is October, is October so.
0: Close.
1: Have a good night, everybody.